a Podcast One production. Hi, I'm Christopher Pine, and welcome to Pine Time. For years, I've been on the receiving end of a barrage of questions, some would say abuse, from the media and other politicians. But I've tried to keep it together, and hopefully I've had a successful career in politics. But now I'm out of the game, and I'm risking it all to step out of my comfort zone and embrace a new world of media, to turn the tables on my guests so you can hear for the first time stories that you've never heard before as they succumb to what some people are kindly describing as the pine effect. My guest today is Richard Harry Harris. Harry was the 2019 Australian of the Year and would be well known to listeners as the uh, cave diving anaesthetist who rescued along with his pal Craig Challen the boys from the soccer team who were trapped in the cave in Thailand and we'll talk a bit about that. But really he's an adventurer more than anything else uh, and I think anaesthesia is, is, is his day job which he has to do to pay his bills. So, Harry, of all the pastimes you could have pursued, why cave diving? Cave diving really started for me in the 80s. I was a diving instructor at, the, at Flinders University. And after diving the local wrecks and seeing all the fish off South Australia's coastline for a number of years, I guess myself and some friends were looking for a bit of a challenge, looking for something different. And we're graced in South Australia with an exceptional area for cave exploration down in the southeast of South Australia around Mount Gambier. And I had known quite a few people over the years who'd done some cave exploration, so I thought it was time to go down and have a look. And I have to say my first impressions were not that great. Uh, (laughs) I went down there in July. I was a poor student. I had a thin wetsuit. Mount Gambier in July in the rain is not always, always that pleasant. And the water down there is consistently between 11 and 15 degrees in the freshwater sinkholes. So I was pretty miserable for most of that training and the training's very robust. Like they don't muck around in cave diving because it is a potentially hazardous environment. So they, they put you through your paces. And even after having been a diver for oh, nearly eight years, I suppose, by then, and pretty a passionate scuba diver. A, a scuba diver, yeah. uh, I found it quite, quite hard and my skills really went up a level. And I guess that's one of the things that attracted to me, uh, it, me to it after that. It, it really tests you out. Well, it must be incredibly hard and it's very dangerous and there have been numerous people who have perished cave diving and we'll come back to one of those that you were intimately involved in finding their body later. What do you see down there? This is a very common question and uh, <laughs> the straight answer is wet rocks and more wet rocks but... A colourful rocks? Actually, sand? it can be stunningly beautiful. Is it? I often show people a photograph that I took in a, in a well-known sinkhole called Killsby's Sinkhole which has beams of sunlight shining down through crystal clear water and iridescent blue water. It's just, it's like a cathedral. It's extraordinarily Where's lovely. that? It's on a farm near Mount Gambier. Right, and the, in the southeast. Yeah, and the landowners very kindly allow the cave divers to come and access it and, and dive in there. And, you know, the, the clearest ocean water that you've ever snorkeled in in the tropics on a, on a coral reef looks filthy compared to the water in these sites. It's 
hard to explain. I mean, we use the term gin clear water and mm. literally the, the visibility is limited only by the, the strength of your light beam. So they're, they're really beautiful places. And yet it's not a sport that has taken off. Oh, I think it has around, around my <laughs> circle of friends. It's that very right? popular. <laughs> so you're the only cave diver I've ever talked to. Really? Mm-hmm. That, that surprises me. In my life. heaps of us. Like there, there can't be. or more. I mean, people who join MG clubs, there's lots of them. Yeah, well, you see them on the road. They're flashy sort of blokes. We're bridge we? players. There's a lot. Of, there's bridge clubs <laughs> all, all through the country. They are devil, devils, those bridge players. <laughs> but the, cave, the cave divers are, I would have to describe them as a niche interest. We are a niche. And to be honest, we're not recruiting. We don't want too many more people doing it because oh, in case it's like Adelaide. The it's the best kept secret, Christopher, and yeah. you'll agree. You don't want everybody going down there staring up the water. No, we don't they want the hordes coming down. And most of these tunnels are entirely natural, as in there's, they're not tunnelled out by coal mining or iron ore mining. They've all just been formed over rock for millions of years, have they? Yeah, so I guess there's two sorts of endeavours. One is the naturally formed caves, the usually limestone or a similar rock which has been dissolved over hundreds of thousands of years to, to mm. form these caves and then they're full of water. But there is a, a group that enjoy diving in flooded mines and I've done a mm. bit of that myself, but actually man-made holes like that are, are more hazardous because they are normally supported in the air by wooden or, or concrete structures and over time those structures erode and decay and they, they come become a bit unstable. So mine diving is, is probably a bit riskier again. And not as safe. No. No. Well, I think that's fascinating. But that love of adventure, that comes from where were were you always a child that loved taking risks and doing adventurous things? I don't think so. I still don't consider myself a risk taker. Um, <laughs> How because, interesting! Because and and I find this the more and more people I talk to who are involved in what we would perceive as high risk activities, I have a bit of an interest in their personality types, and I find almost universally these are the most cautious, careful methodical people I've ever met. And I guess that's why they're still alive. And maybe mm. the people who are not like that are like the old pilots and bold pilots, but there's no old bold pilots that's saying. That. And so the people mm. who don't have that uh, sense of, of self-care don't actually survive very long. So they're not the ones you get to chat to. Do you think that being at a, a, a boy at Saints, which is um, for the list, most listeners wouldn't have the faintest clue what St. Peter's College was, but it has produced three Nobel Prize winners. And uh, is the only school outside continental US, in fact, that's produced three Nobel Prize winners, which I don't know if you realise. And I think there's been 15 Nobel Prize winners in Australia, of which five have come from South Australia, three of them from one school, which is amazing. But people like Douglas Mawson and um, the, the boys, the men at Saints who you would have been told about when you were at school, they were all extending the boundaries, weren't they? They were all trying to do something that nobody else had done. Lord Florey with penicillin, Douglas Mawson travelling to the the Antarctica. Um, Did that instil in you not just your father's example but also the sense that you could do anything and that you should try and have a go rather than just sort of, you know, make up the numbers? Well, I don't think they were ever looking at me as a potential Nobel Prize winner when <laughs> no, I was at no, school. No. Um, I was not. Well, you never know. Well, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> 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 I was not a great student and my time at school wasn't the best part of my life, I don't think. I think I was a bit immature and I was struggling to find myself. 
I was quite disruptive and, and poorly behaved and that certainly affected my grades. It was only in year 12 where I finally got my head down and, in. And, and got enough marks to get into medicine. But, you know, it was a, it was a close run thing. Well, you can't have been that silly because it's hard to get into medicine. Well, impossible these days. I'd mm. say I wouldn't have a chance. But then it was it was feasible if you if you did the work. Well, and you'd have to pass the UMAT test and I they might decide you're crazy. <laughs> Don't even get me started on that. That, that. I mean, that seems like just another exam that everyone has to study for and do. I mean, anyway, <laughs> it's, a, it's a bugbear for me. But so... I think, you know, when you're at a, an amazing school, which St. Peter's College is an extraordinary and privileged place to be, you don't appreciate what you have until after you, you, you leave and you look back and go, crikey, that's like something out of uh, Harry Potter, that place. Sure. It, it's an extraordinary place. And to be honest, the other thing I felt at the time, I was a bit uncomfortable with some of the social values that were coming out of the school. And so I left with this sort of awkward feeling about my whole experience there. Now, I've actually reconnected with the school now and been back to talk to some of the students because I didn't want to positively discriminate against those kids just because they had come from good backgrounds or, or were lucky enough to find themselves at a very privileged school like that. And, um, you know, my mission as Australian of the Year was to get out and talk to as many kids as possible. So it seemed unfair to be biased towards that school. And actually I went back and the headmaster is an extraordinary guy. He is really um, levelled and has um, really improved the whole social um, vibe at the, at the school and, and, you know, equality for all and, and giving less fortunate kids a big opportunity in, in many cases. So I came away actually very impressed and slightly ashamed of my, my sentiment. Prejudice. Yeah, my, my <laughs> prejudice against, you know, lucky, happy people. But whilst I was there, Flory's name was a constant and I did love science and biology and so having that name draped around the place was pretty cool, I have to admit. And um, I've gone on to really admire a lot of great people who I think have influenced me, people like Reg Sprigg, the geologist who founded the Arkarula Sanctuary, is mm -hmm. someone who uh, I have enormous respect for. Uh, Mawson, uh, Sir Hubert Wilkins, the, sure. the most famous explorer of all time, in my view, from is South that right? Australia. I tried to name the submarines after him. The Nautilus? Or no, the, the, new, the attack class. <laughs> no, the, the, Wilk the Wilkins class. I don't think the Hubert sounds very dangerous. No, it doesn't. <laughs> no, but people probably don't know Hubert Wilkins, Sir Hubert Wilkins as he became, but he was not only an amazing submariner who took the first submarine to the Arctic Circle, he was also an amazing photographer, as mm. you probably know. Yep. And he was the photographer, who you might not know this, but you probably do, that took the photographs of the Battle of Hamel before... Sir John Monash actually attacked. Monash said he was the bravest man I ever met. You're right. So when I became the Minister for Defence Industry, I <laughs> asked the Chief of the Navy, Vice Admiral Tim Barrett, to come and see me about something. And I said, actually, I've come up with some suggestions for the <laughs> new submarine Was class. he looking for suggestions? No, he wasn't. <laughs> and I, he said, what? And I said, yes, yes, I've got a suggestion. He said, oh, well, usually the um, Chief of the Navy recommends a name um, to the Defence Minister. Just a suggestion. Minister. And I said, that's okay. I said, it's just a suggestion. <laughs> he said, oh, well, he wasn't very forthcoming. Tim is a great person, but he was very um, reticent a about shooter. encouraging this um, flight of fancy on my part. And I said, well, I said, how do you decide the... Um, the names, Tim. And he said, well, we do a, um, we asked the history section for some suggestions. And I said, oh, who's that? He said, what? I said, well, what's that person's name? 
He said, I'll get you the name. I said, good, because I'm going to give him a call, him or her a call. As it turned out, it was a him. So I called him myself as the minister. And I said, are you thinking about names for the new submarine class? He said, well, of course I am. I said, well, I've got a suggestion. He said, really? I said, Hubert Wilkins, the Wilkins class. And then I explained, of course, he knew who Hubert Wilkins was. And he's a South Australian, right? So I thought this would be good because the submarines are being built here in South Australia. We'll have a South Australian name for the class. Anyway, the Wilkins class did not see the light of day and it became the attack class, that's which is a much better name. <laughs> the attack <laughs> class is a much better name. Yeah. Yeah. The Hubert Wilkins class doesn't, doesn't sound very scary. But no, I think if our enemies said, well, I think there's a Hubert, a Hubert on the way, <laughs> everyone would just giggle. A Hubert on the way to see us. <laughs> yes, the attack class does sound a lot more um, yeah, menacing. I think so. Yeah. But that, uh, but Hubert, so Hubert Wilkins was obviously a, um, a hero of yours. Absolutely. In fact, I'm now the patron of the Hubert Wilkins Foundation. Oh, well, you know all uh, about so it. Who am I telling I'm, you I'm about the Hubert Wilkins? i bottle on Hubert. Don't Goodness. worry about that. So what's the Hubert Wilkins Foundation? Where's that? Well, recently set up uh, by a bunch of enthusiasts, including a couple of historians, what, uh, to basically... Photographer enthusiasts or no, submariner enthusiasts? History, history enthusiasts. History enthusiasts. Oh, yeah. good. And, of course, I was approached because of, A, I dropped his name a couple of times during interviews as right. someone who inspired me, uh, and, B, because I'm I'm a, you know, a part-time adventurer, not yeah. like Sir Hubert, who was the real deal. He was definitely the yeah. real... Well, you are the real deal as well, but he was definitely the real deal and very little known in this country. Well, that's the thing. So the whole point... Well, there's a couple of points, but the first point is to make his name well-known at least within his own state, because he's, he's exactly. fabulously well-known in America. They really revere the guy. Is that right? Yeah. In fact, it was the American uh, atomic sub or nuclear submarine who went under the ice to recreate his failed effort and mm. laid his ashes on the ice at the North Pole. Is that right? That's uh, a really beautiful... He was a man of many parts. Oh, yeah. Extraordinary Submariner, guy. military person... Photographer. photographer, along with Frank Hurley, he was out on the on the Western Front. And going up in those planes in the First World War to take photographs of the battlefield before the battle, yep. in order to be able to help, you know, in this case, Sir John Monash, it was a very dangerous exercise. Oh, and I mean, the Germans, the Germans would have been quite happy to shoot all those people down, and they were well, trying to. Well, apparently, he was walking across no man's land on the Western Front there, and the Germans were heard to say and I won't try a German accent, but they were heard to say, who, who is that guy out in the middle there? What's he doing? <laughs> What's he doing? <laughs> Shall we shoot him? And, was he uh, taking photographs? He was just taking photos and then pulling a few injured soldiers back to the lines. Uh, extraordinary guy. How bizarre. But, yeah, he's like John McDowell Stewart, who is uh, one of Australia's great explorers who laid out the telegraph line path to Palmerston, as it then was, who's not nearly as famous as Burke and Wills, mm. who he beat on that competition because he survived. Yep. And this is typical of Australia. Burke and Wills perished, so everyone knows who they are, and John McDowell Stewart, who actually succeeded, is not nearly as well known. No, that's right. And I think the same applies to Wilkins. You know, maybe mm. Mawson was uh, a better self-promoter, a better publicist than people like Hu Hubert was. He, Wilkins was accused of being aggressively modest, um, so he never really, you know, sold his own um, attributes, but, you know, obviously a great guy. But obviously, getting back to where this bug comes from mm. for you to get out and do interesting things, all of that growing up, learning about those stories is a big part of how you you ended up doing cave diving rather than mahjong. I guess so. Mahjong's not nearly as dangerous. I tried mahjong, didn't like it. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> uh, 
it's not always been happy times, has it, for cave diving for you? Because your achievements in diving to the some of the lowest depths on record and being involved in some of the most important activities in cave diving has made you somebody that, for example, the SA police came to when they were looking for the body of a friend of yours in 2011, Agnes Malovka. So tell us about that. What was that like? So I had been working since about 2007 or eight to establish some kind of resource for cave rescue in Australia and New Zealand and starting in Australia, obviously, I was very worried about what would happen to me if I was on the wrong side of a sump and I got injured. Now, a sump is a a water-filled section of the cave Mm -hmm. and in some sorts of caves, you can start on the surface, dive through a sump and then surface in a remote chamber and then you can go dry caving, take all your diving gear off and go walking around and exploring. Sometimes you might find another sump and carry your gear over to the next sump and off you go again. And there's one place in particular called Cocklebitty Cave out in Western Australia near the well-known roadhouse at Cocklebitty, you know, population six, I think. And there's a place out there that the cave is over six kilometres long to get to the far end of it. And you have to come up into two of these massive dry chambers on the way, carry all your gear across basically an underwater mountain and then back down into the water. And I was in there in 2008 and I said to my friend, what would happen if one of us fell over and broke our leg here? How or who would come and rescue us? And the answer was very clear that the people who would come and rescue us were actually already in the cave with us. Um, Mm. There weren't that many people around who would have that sort of capability. So I started to think and then design a course to help train the cave divers in Australia on how to approach such a problem and also how to approach the problem if someone actually was deceased in the cave. How could we help uh, recover that body? Because the, the police... Uh, divers work under a commercial diving code and for some of these sites it's impractical or not uh, possible under their legislation to actually get their divers to where they're needed. Uh, It's just too far in, for example, or too deep. So I started to have that conversation with the South Australian Police uh, Water Operations Group. So what would happen in the situation where it was too far and too deep and they couldn't go in? Well, they would either have to bend their rules and they can do that slightly under the right circumstances with, with high deceased. level approval or they would have to close the cave and leave, leave the body in there. Now, God. that's bad for the landowner. It's bad for the cave divers, obviously. And it's bad, bad very karma. bad for the family, you know, mm. who wants their loved one back. So I just started to have that conversation and coincidentally, sadly, there was a spate of deaths in in South Australia. We lost three cave divers in about three years. Is that right? And that cluster, as sad as it was, just gave us the opportunity to kind of put a toe in the water and and have this collaborative um, partnership with the police. It was very high risk for for SAPOL, I have to say, and I give them enormous credit for entrusting some of these responsibilities very much under their supervision, I would emphasise, but to to trust us with that responsibility of assisting with that body recovery. Uh, and in two of those cases, we were able to help them directly. And in the third case, we were able to offer some advice on the surface about, you know, the diver's equipment and that sort of thing. Uh, so Ms Malovka wasn't the only one that you... Uh, Malovka. Yeah, no. So there have been three and um, I was directly involved in, you know, actually doing the body recovery of two of those divers. God, that must be stressful. Well... Or do you just think this has got to be done? 
Yeah, I, I mean, obviously it's very unpleasant, especially when one of them, uh, Agnes, was a, a close friend. But, you know, I felt like I, it was something very good that I could do for her and her family. Mm. And so it was, in a way, a privilege to be part of that, to, to do that for Agnes. It's a very cool way of, very clear-eyed, like cool-eyed way of thinking. Uh, there's not much sentimentality involved in that decision. Does that come from being a doctor? I think that helps having seen deceased persons before, mm. obviously takes a bit of that stress away, but, you know, there's nothing like swimming around the corner and seeing a friend floating in the water there. There's no getting used to that. No. Uh, that was that was tough and it took a while to do. So, you know, I could keep my eyes on the job and, and keep myself focused whilst I was working, but I have to say as soon as I got out of the water after the final dive, I fell in a pretty big heap for a, a day or two. It was, right. I was pretty distressed by it. Yeah, well, it would be. It would be very, very difficult, no matter what your training was as an anaesthetist or as a, as a doctor or as anybody involved in those kinds of emergency responses, ambulance mm. and fire and police and so forth. But, you know, you think about the South Australian police divers and other, you know, um, working divers, they have to do this sort of thing as their part of their job every, not every day, but, you know, pretty frequently. But so Far too often. You know, tough bunch. So let's, that's not a bad segue into the, um, the Thai cave rescue which uh, was... Middle of 18, June, July 18. So mid-2018, you must have been seeing on the television these stories about these poor boys um, trapped in the cave in Thailand. Did that network of cave divers across the world start communicating with each other? Almost immediately. By Facebook and text message and... Yep, it all... It lit up. Lit up. Um, So I remember seeing a tiny little article, you know, two inches high in the corner of page five of the paper, you know, boys stuck in cave in Thailand. I went, oh, that's interesting. What's that about? Mm. And then very quickly I was contacted by a friend of mine who's a Belgian expat diver who uh, who lives and works in Thailand, runs a technical diving school and guiding service, which technical diving is about cave diving and deep diving basically. And he contacted me and said he'd been asked to go up to the cave and did I have any suggestions from a medical aspect point of view. And I, at that stage, the boys hadn't even been found. I then heard that a couple of friends of mine who are British cave divers went over there, Rick Stanton and John Valanthan. Mm-hmm. And these guys are kind of revered in the cave diving world. They are truly the Edmund Hillary's of the sport at, at this stage. And so once I heard those guys were involved, I thought, you know, this if there's any chance for those boys, they've got the right guys on the job. Mm -hmm. And I started communicating with those guys. And then on day nine, after the kids went missing, they found the boys with with a great deal of assistance from a lot of other divers, including the Thai Navy divers, the Navy SEALs. Those two Brits managed to get to chamber nine where the boys were waiting. And they're talking about how many people? Yeah. So that a lot of people have seen that famous video from John Valanthan's head camera, helmet camera, where he says, how many of you are there? Mm-hmm. And one of the boys who just speaks a few words of English says 13. And John says, brilliant in that <laughs> English, English accent. So that, that video came out of the cave and was on CNN or some other news service before John and Rick got out of the cave because there was uh, in Chamber 3, which was like the advanced dive base, there were a heap of Thai Navy people encamped in there and acting as a forward supply base or staging post for the divers. And they had a fibre optic Wi-Fi connection in there and apparently that was downloaded and out before the British divers even got out of the cave. Crazy. So, so uh, yes. Uh, 
and that set the scene, obviously, for what, what followed. Well, it did, and it set the scene for you and Craig being obviously asked your advice about the best way to get those 13 uh, people out of the cave, right? Well, initially it was just discussions, ongoing discussions, particularly with between myself and Rick Stanton. Mm. And Rick is an ingenious guy. He's a was a firefighter, um, very practical guy, but very clever. And he actually texted me one day. I was in the operating theatre, um, and he said, "Is it? What do you think about sedating these boys to bring them out? Because everyone had been thinking, how can you possibly teach kids to cave dive, mm. not just scuba dive, but cave dive?" so that they can swim out 2.4 kilometres. Which is a long way. It's a very long way. And not mm. just a long way, it's a really gnarly cave. You know, it's high it- flow, zero visibility, muddy water and some very tight restrictions that you have to wiggle through. So, you know, it's not, um, you know, entry-level cave diving at all. And any cave diver would tell you that that's impossible for someone to do without panicking. So all thoughts of teaching the kids, giving them scuba lessons and then holding their hand to come out once I actually saw the cave myself, I realised why the Brits were not keen to do that. I realised that was just an impossible So did you quest. think they're doomed at that point? I was completely sure they were doomed. I thought mm. they had no chance of survival. And, you know, the whole world, including the parents of these kids, of course, breathed a huge sigh of relief when the boys were found. You know, mm. nine days, no food. Mm. Everyone had given up hope, including myself, that they were even going to be found alive. Mm. So when they were found safe and sound up on this very high shelf of mud, and um, in in no danger of actually being immersed or drowned, then suddenly the whole world starts thinking, especially the divers, how do you get them out? Mm. It's impossible. Um, you know, can we can we lower the water levels and walk them out? Can we drill a hole down to them? And yes, but there was all supplied? that talk about pumping all the water out. Yeah, lots of plans. But and there was also the wet season coming, right? Well, it was it had arrived uh, mm. early, in fact, uh, which is why the boys got trapped because they'd gone in at what should have been a safe time, but unexpected monsoon uh, arrived, and there was a small window of about three days. We were told which we had to get these kids out, and then the rain was back. And once it was back, it was there to stay, and that's the end. Because Rick and John had attempted to get into the cave when they first arrived, and the floodwaters were so powerful they literally got spat out. They couldn't make their way forward into the water. God. So if that happened again, which it was going to, then that's it. The boys are going to sit in there and starve or or die of exposure. Wow. So who was the person that said to you, well, obviously you think we could sedate them and you said, well, it would be almost impossible, but then somebody at some point said, why don't you and Craig come over and see what you can do? Well, when Rick texted me that question, could you sedate them, my answer was immediate and emphatic. It's impossible. It can't be done. But Mm. I reiterated the offer that, you know, we could come over and offer some support, perhaps as a doctor, if I could go to the end of the cave and be with the boys, I could, um, you know, pep them up a bit while you guys come up with a better plan than the one you've just suggested. (laughs) Um, So he said, all right, well, I'll I'll speak to the Australian embassy people who are floating around and I'll give them your name and you probably hear something. And within an hour, Canberra uh, DFAT was on the phone to me. And I said to them, uh, I'm happy to go over, but I need someone I trust with me if I'm going to be doing anything medical. I just need another cave diver who I trust, who I can bounce ideas off, will keep an eye on my back while I'm trying to navigate the medical stuff. You know, he can look after us in the cave sort of thing. So I gave them Craig's name. Uh, we'd done some of these body recoveries together and we'd done some fairly serious exploration together. So I knew it was a guy who was pretty unflappable. Mm-hmm. And they came back with, oh, well, who is this Craig Jallen? Because I, it was fortunate for me, I, I was already a member of the Australian Medical Assistance Team. I was working with the South Australian Ambulance. I was kind of a known quantity to them. I'd worked with AusAid. 
But they came back and went, oh, we don't know Craig Jellin. He's not he's not on the books. And not said, on our list. Oh, I think I'm pretty sure he's tied up with Western Australian Urban Search and Rescue because we'd done a rope course together and so I sort of threw him that line mm-hmm. and they came back, no, no, we haven't got a record. Oh, well, you know, I'm not going without him. So that uh, caused a bit of a flurry of activi- activity in Canberra but they finally, you know, swung up. I mean, again, big risk for the Australian government sending a couple of volunteers to a high-risk situation, I guess. Terrible. So you went there. Uh, how do you pronounce the name Tam Luang? That's how we say it here in Australia. How do they say it? <laughs> I'm not sure. We say Tam Luang. <laughs> Tam Luang. Yeah. So you get to the Tam Luang site and uh, it's obviously a hive of activity and everybody, every man and his dog is there with all their television cameras and there's these 13 human beings that are the centre of all this attention. And at that, what was your first thought when you got to the to the site and thought, what did you think? What oh, did you ca- first think? Chaos, absolute chaos because, you know, there's people from multiple nations, there's the Thai people everywhere, but there's all levels of government, there's the king's representatives there, there's the navy, the army, all these rescue authorities, police, tourist police, you know, millions of different uniforms, it seemed to me, mm. and the press was overwhelming. You know, when I first opened the door to the van that we got dropped up in there, there's I've got this picture of this sea of cameras. And unlike yourself, Christopher, <laughs> I have had very little experience dealing with the media up to that point. So I'm that sure was terrifying. That was terrifying for me. <laughs> it would have been. And very distracting, I assume. It was. In fact, we were lucky we had these amazing guys from the Australian Federal Police, some tactical response fellows who are quite capable, I understand, and they <laughs> kind of ran defence for us. And so right. they were a great bunch of lads to have around and, and look after us and, um, you know, keep, keep the media away and help carry some gear for us, all that sort of stuff. So they get you through to the centre point where all the decisions are being made and somebody says, right, well, what do you two think? And you yeah. said... Well, there was a, a lot of pressure on me to just get going right into the cave, sedate the kids, bring them, bring out. them out. I said, whoa, you know, hang, hang on. on. I don't think that can work and, uh, you know, I don't really want to be the guy who's responsible for 13 deaths and I knew it would come back to me if that did happen. You know, I'm the bloke who put the needle in them and, and then they drowned. Well, that's true. I mean, the reality is if you had failed, um, you would have been Dr. Death. Well, my wife pointed that very name out to me, actually. She, she said, you would be the Dr. Death of Thailand if this goes badly. And she mentioned that the night before the first rescue day, which was very helpful, I thought. Because the problem would have been that if you'd failed, and thank God you didn't, but if you had failed, every expert in the world would have said, well, they should have done this and they should have done that, that they'd used my drug and, you know, Donald Trump would have had a view and you would have been completely pilloried. I've got absolutely no doubt about that. It would have mm. been crucifixion by media and expertise on Monday morning. Well, thank God that didn't happen, but it must have all been going through your mind or did you manage to just sort of put all that out and think, right, I've got only one job here today? Well, it has occurred to me that I might be a little naive or, or foolish, Christopher, because most of that didn't really occur to me until Fiona, my wife, pointed it that out. That was nice of her. <laughs> I was just thinking, oh, we'll give this a go, you know, do do our best. What could go wrong? Exactly. Mm. Um, Anyway, I mean, you can't think about yourself when 13 lives are on the line. You you either commit to it or you have to, you shouldn't have got on the plane. Or you say pass, yeah. Yeah. Uh, So the first meeting we had was with the British divers to get the lay of the land. What's the actual diving like? Because, of course, with any rescue, you have to look after yourself first and foremost. So I had to make sure it was safe 
for me because these British divers, as I mentioned, are on another level in terms of their expertise. So, you know, when Rick said to me one day, well, you know, that cave, it's a bit sporting, Harry, but I think you'll be all right. You know, that's like Edmund saying, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a hill. <laughs> it's quite it's quite <laughs> it's a quite climb. steep. It's quite <laughs> so uh, that that frightened the life out of me when he said it was a bit sporting. So I thought, bloody hell, I'm you know maybe I can't even get my sorry backside to the end of the cave. But uh, you obviously went and did a reconnoitre. Yeah. So Craig and I spent the whole next day in the cave, right. seeing the kids. I just wanted to see the kids for myself, see the place where I might be doing the anaesthetic, make sure that I could safely get myself there and back. And once I had a clearer mental picture of the whole landscape, then I could actually think seriously about what they were asking me. I also needed to look at all the other plans that were being proposed. Like I wasn't going to go anywhere near this idea of sedating them if we could just pump the water out or we could just drill a hole or something like that. But very quickly it became clear that all those other plans were not going to come to fruition. And did Craig sort of turn to you at some point and say, this is ridiculous? Well... Craig's a more practical, unemotional bloke than me, so he was able to look at the whole thing more clinically, I think, and say, look, Harry, these are the options. We either walk away and these kids are going to die or we give this a go and they'll probably die, but at least, you know, we've given them a small chance. But I felt it was that that chance was zero. Zero. I did not think it could work. So is it true that when you had sedated the boys and they'd been taken back through the cave and, of course, you didn't know that, because you were in the cave the whole time while they were each being sedated and then removed, that when they when they said to you, when you said something like, how did we go, and you said they said 10 out of 10 or something. Four, th- out, of four, four out of four on the first day, and I assume they meant you four, thought they four were four dead. died, yeah. yeah. God, that must have been extraordinary. I was so in the mindset that that was going to be the outcome that first yeah. day, that when that um, US Air Force guy who, who greeted me at the surface in, in Chamber 3 when I said to him, how do we go? And he said, four out of four. I, I just went, oh, I thought that could happen. Far he said, no, out. mate, four out of four, they're all good. Wow. Oh, okay. God, that must have been, I've got goosebumps talking about it. Yeah. That must have been really shocking. And But I suppose he thought, well, I got the first four out, I might have some luck with the others as well. You know what, to be honest, that night after that first four came out, I hit a real low. I kind of... Right? decided in my mind that somehow we had fluked this first day and tomorrow and the day after the next, um, you know, nine um, kids in the coach were going to perish. And to me that seemed even more desperate in a way that the first four had come out and then we were going to start to have some fatalities because, you know, you can imagine, well, the ties, you know, just assume that after the first four came out, well, there you go, it's easy, it's done. Just bring out the rest now. You must have been a barrel of laughs that night oh, when you were yeah, talking I was, to people. I was a great <laughs> guy to be with. <laughs> happy to catch up I with kept you. it to myself. But it was a pretty long night, you know, yeah. in the hotel room, listening to the rain falling on the roof. That was the other thing that started bucketing down. Mm. So we also thought there's a chance we might not even be going back into the cave. So you did get them all out, which was an amazing achievement, and um, the world was watching and you suddenly became an international celebrity, you and Craig Challen. And then uh, obviously the Australians, Australia was very proud that we were part of that um, amazing achievement. And quite fittingly, uh, you and Craig were made Australians of the Year in 2019. And I was uh, with you in Government House when you received your uh, Order of Australia medal. And uh, that was a funny day. 
because all of my colleagues didn't really believe that we would know each other. Sure, we're from Adelaide. <laughs> That's exactly right. And uh, I heard someone say, is Christopher Piney? Because um, Harry's looking for Christopher. And uh, I said, oh, because I told everybody, you see, because, of course, you know, they all thought I was skiting. I said to everybody, I know Harry Harris. <laughs> He's a friend of my brother, Nicholas. <laughs> and they were going, oh, yeah, sure, of course you do. You know the Australian, the, you know, the cave rescue. I said, I do. I said, we've caught up with each other for dinner and things. Said, yeah, of course you have. And anyway, then we saw each other and lots of laughs and a couple of glasses of champagne to celebrate um, your achievement, which was great. And then you threw yourself into... Um, 2019 as Australian of the Year, that was, must have been a really different experience for oh, you. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, I, was, I was so embarrassed to receive that award, I have to say. You know, when we first, our names got called up, I was horrified. You know, I felt, and I know this sounds a bit, you know, fake humility sort of stuff, but honestly, you look at the people in that room and you look at those people who have spent their lives, you know, working for some social cause against some great injustice. And here's a couple of blokes who've just been diving in Thailand. I know it was big and I know <laughs> the story big. was big, but it wasn't to us. It was just something that we did. It was just like, you know, the emergency services do every day. The, the fireys going into a burning building every day of their lives because they've done the training and that's what they're expecting in their day. And, you know, I... To be frank, Craig and I were so excited when we heard there could be a rescue in Thailand because we'd been doing this training for 10 years or so by then and we love cave diving. I love giving anaesthetics. For mm. me, it was just the dream, you know, combination. Yes, of course, when I looked those kids in the eyes for the first time, mm. then it struck me that this is not a joke, this is not a game and, you know, it was a big deal. And by your own admission, it was impossible. Yeah. And the fact that the impossible was achieved is what made it spectacular. And you probably don't realise because you were immersed in it, but the whole world was watching. Well, that's what I guess I've come to understand. Mm. And if we were the symbols of something bigger for this country, and that I think is what being the Australian of the Year is all about, then that's something that I wear with enormous pride and, and privilege. So... I guess um, a school kid early on in my tenure as Australian of the Year, I was talking to a, a bunch of school kids and this real tough-looking boy in the front row put his hand up at the end of my talk when I said any questions and he slowly put his hand up and he said, do you really think you deserve that Australian of the Year? A very Australian <laughs> question. And I thought, boy, that's really hit me hard because yeah. that's exactly struck at the, uh, the very centre of the whole issue for me because I didn't feel like I... I deserved it. And it just came to me in this light bulb moment and I said to him, you know what, to this point I haven't really felt like I've deserved it, but I think the way forward for me is to make sure that by the end of the year I feel like I've deserved it. So that's why I kind of, I guess I did my best to get around and, and spread the word and, and inspire in particular as many children around the country as possible and I think we did a reasonable job at that. And when you say spread the word, I mean the message that I, one of the messages that I took from your period as Australian of the Year uh, was to children particularly, and also their parents, to be risk takers, uh, yeah, to, to uh, not be frightened. Sensible risk takers. Yeah, of you course, know, but you, to not be risk, frightened. Risk is a hugely important part of the human condition. We have to take risks to grow and evolve because if we don't, we end up being quite poor specimens, to be honest. Um, if, if we don't do tough things, then then we inevitably will become weak people. And, uh, you know, if if you don't need courage in your day from time to time, then life is too soft and easy. And if something bad does happen, you'll fall in a big heap. And something bad happens to all of us 
with you know pretty True. frequently. So mm. you got to be ready. So it was about to me. It was about building resilience. I think so. And uh, that was the message that I think you sort of propagated throughout the year was, uh, you know, to parents, let your children, you know, climb trees and fall out of them, you know, ride bikes over bridges, um, you know, go for swims in, in the ocean and, you know, enjoy life. You know, most of the country are urban dwellers these days and mm. for country kids it's easy, it's all laid out there, you know, they get the freedom that they need and they've got the landscape to explore. But, you know, as a kid I grew up in Adelaide in the city and I had little friends, we jumped on our bikes and we went off and explored the local parks and mm. mum said be home for tea time. Exactly. You know, the, the landscape has changed in some ways, there's more traffic on the roads and so on and so forth, but there's no excuse to not give your kids appropriate amounts of freedom when they're ready for it and they need to explore their boundaries and they're going to come home with a, the odd broken bone or, or stub toe, but, you know, mostly they don't get badly injured. And we've got an amazing health system to pick up the pieces if they do. So, And yeah. mostly they're very aware today of the dangers in a way that perhaps, you know, when we were young, we weren't quite as, uh, you know, aware of some of the people lurking out there or the dangers lurking out there. And I don't think that's changed. You mm. know, we talk about it more now, but the same people were still out there back then. Of course then. they were. Yeah. Yeah, they were. It's tough talking about those kids in the, t- in the cave, isn't it? Mm. Well... There's lots to talk about and you can go on and on. So. You could go on forever yeah. talking about that because it's uh, like, for example, before we move on to that, before we run out of time, the parents must have been tremendously grateful to you and to Craig and the aftermath of saving the children. Has there been a continuous follow-up with those families? I mean, how does, how does that manifest itself? Yeah, well, sadly not for us because... No immediately the wagons were circled around those kids. The government was very protective of them and appropriately so because immediately, you know, the world's press was trying to get at them. Sure. Everyone who was anyone was trying to write a book or make a film and and so they were getting, they would have been completely swamped by that. So they had some protectors put in place. Unfortunately, that meant that even we couldn't really get to talk to them. And what I have done is managed to connect with most of them on Facebook and we've exchanged occasional one-line things via Google Translator to just catch up and say, how are you going? So I just occasionally say g'day and check in on them. And the kids are thriving? They seem to be well, yeah. Because, of course, they could fall in their own hole. They could. I think there's great expectations on them as well from the Thai community. You know, you've been given this chance, now you better do something good with it for our country and to pay back all the people, especially Saman Gunan, the... Thai Navy SEAL who who perished during the yeah, rescue. Tragically. So I think they feel a, a debt of gratitude and uh, to the to the country. So they'll they'll do well. So what happens now, Harry? You've done um you've done the cave rescue, which was a, obviously a tremendous uh, lifetime achievement, and then Australian of the Year for for a year, which means you can't do much else. Uh, in twenty twenty, do you return to the new normal of the coronavirus and? And back to anesthesiology or do you look for something new to do? Well, I am at a bit of a decision point. I was almost developing a new career um, from the public speaking. Um, I've got, uh, we wrote a book, Craig and I, which is Against the odds. uh, Against all odds, which has gone well. That's gone well. And um, I am finding some opportunities in documentary filmmaking for myself, something I've wanted to pursue for a long time, particularly around exploration and and Mm -hmm. underwater stuff, obviously. So I'm working hard on getting that up and running. Obviously, the COVID-19 issue has put the stops on a lot of the creative arts, Mm. so that's a problem. Uh, I've started a podcast 
called Real Risk, uh, oh. which is about talking to adventures, about risk t- adventurers, about risk taking and how they manage risk. And You're trying to uh, compete with Pine Time. I think it's going to be big, Christopher. It's going to be huge. <laughs> I think you're allowed to compete with Pine Time now. <laughs> Real Risk on all the usual <laughs> platforms. Um, so I've got lots of stuff going on, but I'm still doing anaesthetics yeah. and I, I'm just waiting to see how it all pans out. You know, life is so exciting, I have to say, since this there's so many opportunities yeah. and life is pretty good. Well, cave diving has never been as well known in Australia as it is now. That is true. Which must be another achievement. Well, as I said, we're not recruiting, but it's nice to have the sport getting some good publicity because it is actually very safe and a beautiful way to spend your time. So uh, always happy to talk it up. It's been great having you on Pine Time. Thank you. Pine Time was presented by me, Christopher Pine. Audio production by Darcy Thompson, produced by Matt Dwyer and the ever-patient executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. Listener.